Hey, it's Paul Cockett here and uh, I'm away traveling so I've dug into the archives and found some of the more popular episodes over the last couple of years and thought you might like to listen to them again or maybe even listen to them for the first time. Uh, this one is actually my brother. Uh, it was one of my earliest uh, episodes and has proved very popular. Uh, my brother has quite the, the background and experience in the corporate uh, world. Um, but he gave some great insights into uh, how to how great brands consistently perform and how they can be adapted to smaller businesses and, and real estate investing businesses. And uh, shares a, a one-page uh, strat plan that he uses um, consistently in the corporate world and, and could equally be applied uh, to your own business. Uh, so enjoy. In the brands I've worked in, I've seen success. And I've, I've been really lucky right, to work for brands that are generally very well known and generally performed extremely well. And if you look at their focus on the consumer, on having a plan um, and then investing in people, that's their three key ingredients, I would say. You're listening to the REI Branded Podcast. It's for you, the busy real estate investor who wants to stand out from the crowd and attract the right leads, right partners, and right clients every time. My name's Paul Copcut, and each week we'll be looking to decode and uncover what makes a real estate investor brandtastic and how you can apply it to your real estate investing business. Each episode is intended to be valuable, cut to the chase, and actionable so you can begin to implement quickly and easily to get the results you want in your business. Thank you for listening. Now let's get to work on making you brandtastic. Hello and welcome back to the REI Branded Podcast. Um, today I am really excited to introduce you to the person who actually has known me the best for the longest. Uh, it's actually my brother, Richard, um, and he has uh, a very interesting and varied background and experience, um, but has a lot of uh, experience, a lot, a ton of experience in the corporate world, uh, particularly in sports apparel, sports marketing and sales. And what he shares in this episode, I think, is very, very applicable to you and your real estate investing business. Uh, and any business, to be honest, he has some great insights, some great sharing of some uh, ideas and models that he uses that I think can be easily applied across to uh, any market and any business. Um, so I think you're going to enjoy this. Uh, love to know what you think and enjoy the episode. All right. Okay. So uh, welcome, Richard. So this is, um, you might notice a family resemblance. Uh, this is actually my younger brother and more ugly brother. Uh, Richard. Uh, he's based in the UK. But uh, the reason I brought Richard on today for the REI Branded podcast is because uh, he's probably one of the people that I love talking to about brands and marketing because he's spent a corporate career that uh, has covered a number of brands. What, uh, what are the brands that you've worked for, Richard? Uh, I worked for PepsiCo, uh, working on PepsiCo Foods International, as it was, working on the Walker's Crisps brand, more commonly known around the world as Lay's, for example, in, in the US. 
right. or Doritos, for example, uh, as one of their brands. I worked for Nike Inc., uh, working for the Nike brand for over 10 years. I worked uh, at Levi's for about three years. Uh, and I worked at Converse for about seven or eight years. So I've spent a lot of life working for corporate America. <laughs> but mostly in the UK and Europe. Yeah. Mostly in the UK. Uh, spent, I had three postings in the Netherlands because a lot of those US brands tend to have a European headquarters uh, on mainland Northern Europe, usually in the Netherlands, but in the case of Levi's, it was in, in Belgium. And also spent uh, two years living in Boston, Mass., when I uh, worked for Converse. Nice. Excellent. So a lot of the real estate investors that uh, are probably listening to this podcast are, like yourself, working in you know, corporate jobs or full-time jobs. Um, what kind of lessons would you pass on in terms of your corporate experience uh, and particularly working for big brands that could be applicable for a, a real estate investor that maybe has a side business or is looking to build more of a, a real estate investing brand? What are the kind of things that they could transpose from big branding to small branding? Uh, when, I, when I've worked for big brands that are performing well, uh, there's a there's a number of things that they do consistently. So if I take Nike as an example, I worked at Nike when initially when I joined Nike on their clothing business, they were the number five brand in the UK, uh, and then went on an incredible run where they overtook everybody and ended up being the number one brand in clothing, and then in turn obviously number one in footwear as well. And what, what Nike are brilliant at is they have a, what I think they would describe as a laser beam focus on who their consumer is. And it's unwavering and it's at the center of everything that they do. So it's not just talk to them about, you know, sort of serving the consumer, et cetera. They really are focused on it. And so regardless of business that you're in, if you're totally clear about who you're aiming your business at, that's a huge, uh, you know, a huge advantage for you, particularly if you don't lose sight of that. The other thing that these brands are really good at is they don't, they don't get easily distracted into short term thinking. All, all of those brands that I've worked for, even Levi's, because they had a publicly traded debt, but leave Levi's out for a moment. They're all publicly traded, so they've all got to hit quarterly results for Wall Street, etc. Right. And they all know the importance of that. But it would be rare for them to sacrifice a short-term win and endanger the long, longer-term goal. So they're all really good at thinking and acting long-term. There are occasions when we had cause to be tactical and, and do something sort of short-term, get a win, get something over the line because you had a quarter to hit. And that's just, you know, that's just a normal practice in running a business. But right. in principle, they're really good at minimum midterm, but generally long-term thinking. And when I say long-term, 
I'm saying at least three years out, you know, maybe five years out. And I'm sure there's plenty of people in those organizations that are paid to think even longer out than, than that one. I know there are. So that's really good. Um, and I would say they're very good when, again, when they're at their best, at investing in talent, you know, whether that's encouraging employees to invest in themselves, that's one part of it, but also ensuring that the, the management team are nurturing talent and, you know, making sure that they're investing in their people, they're course correcting when necessary, they're reviewing performance, they're rewarding performance if that's appropriate, uh, and putting opportunities in front of people to push them and to further their career. So, yeah, there's there's definitely, in the brands I've worked in, I've seen success, and I've, I've been really lucky right, to work for brands that are generally very well known and generally performed extremely well. And if you look at their focus on the consumer on having a plan um, and then investing in people, that's their three key ingredients, I would say. What about um, clarity of message? Does that come in with the, the consistency or? Yeah, I, uh, I'm a big believer in sort of visions and mission statements and all those sort of things. And I've worked in businesses where that, was not clear or it kept getting changed and so people then start getting distracted by that or well we've all spent days locked in rooms where you're agonizing over the wording of a mission statement or whatever and you're like okay we've lost sight here of what we're actually trying to do we're overthinking this now um but i have seen the impact of when a mission statement isn't super clear because then People start spending more time worrying about that. You take your eye off the consumer and so on and so on. So I think having having very clear reason for getting out of bed and what the what the company mission is or what the brand stands for and who you're trying to serve, and then just ensuring that that, that message is consistently delivered. I like to imagine myself as a half-decent communicator, and I was fortunate to do jobs that had had global responsibility and i was fascinated by in learning just how simple you have to make the message to be understood in all four corners of the world and even when you think okay you know this is a pretty simple message everyone must get this i'll guarantee you that somebody somewhere in the world doesn't get it and they've interpreted it completely differently so it was actually a really good exercise for me in really simplifying the message and boiling it down to i would say a maximum of three things that you're actually asking people to do arguably at any one time right because once you start getting into the world of laundry lists and it's really complicated and you're dealing with people for whom english might not be their first language or or they're on the other side of the world or there's time time zone differences or there's cultural differences i can assure you it will end in tears so yeah i think yeah, you're right that clarity of communication and simplicity of communication is really important what about um when you think of you know the big brands what about sort of smaller 
tactical, what what a lot of people call guerrilla marketing tactics and things like that, because like in real estate investing, you know, doing classic things like dropping postcards or knocking on doors or putting signs up on lampposts actually works. Mm. Um, is there, are there things that you could take from a bigger brand that you could apply to that more kind of guerrilla type of marketing? Yeah, I think, you know, in my time in corporate, let's say over the last 20 years, it's changed a lot. So what in the industries that I worked in, in PepsiCo, for example, you were lucky if you had one big launch of a product a year at that time, you know, the time I was working there. And then when I ended up working in sports and fashion, there was a sort of seasonality to it. You had spring, summer, autumn, winter product, and you slavishly followed a calendar where every 90 days you had new product, etc. And you had marketing campaigns that went along with that that were very much above the line and very uh, traditional in their outlook. You know, it was either a TV ad or it was a campaign on billboards around a city or what have you. As everybody knows now, a lot of those, it's not to say those those mediums don't work anymore because they do, um, but you you see a lot of impact now on far more local, as, as you sort of say, tactical stuff. Obviously, the whole social media thing has completely changed the dynamic. And there's a kind of, there's a trend at the moment to sort of say, well, it's all about having influencers doing stuff for you. Um, the trouble is everybody then jumps on that bandwagon. And then right. there's a lot of, a lot of skepticism, I think, from consumers about, well, if this can, if this influencer, it's, it's a paid sponsorship and people either have to declare that or it's blindingly obvious that it's a paid sponsorship. Is there actually any real value in this? And I think we've lost sight of the fact that all consumers are influencers. All consumers are media in their own right. And it's just as powerful. And we did this a lot at Converse just as powerful seeing people that you don't know who they are on if i was in london on the tube for example how many people on this tube carriage are wearing converse and what's our sort of shoe count and are we getting penetration that way just visibility for the brand on hopefully the right people but again that's slightly subjective um so sometimes i think you can get a bit bogged down in oh we must get this certain person to wear them or tweet something about our product when actually there's plenty of regular people who just look cool that you know are interesting people doing interesting things that you also want to wear your brand and they will influence enough people anyway themselves without the need for you to sink a load of money in and hope that the the influencer that you're paying then doesn't do something stupid that you're wishing you didn't associate your brand with which which has happened enough times yeah i mean all the time all the time and i just think people are a bit I wonder if people are a bit jaded by the whole influencer thing because it's so transparent now that I just, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of brands wondering, are we really getting value for money here, you know, in terms of of how we're doing stuff? What about the the importance of sales versus marketing? Because, I mean, I, I remember from my corporate career, 25, 30 years ago in cigarettes, you know, sales never talked to marketing, marketing never talked to sales. And it was almost like a, yeah. a, wall, a wall between the two. 
Um, yeah, I mean that you you have to uh, integrate with all all parts of the business. It, traditionally, in in the brands I've worked in, you have you have there's usually ten pillars to a business, right? In in my experience, so you'll have strat planning in in either as a separate function or an, as an activity. You then have product, marketing, sales, operations, finance, retail, HR, IT, and legal. They're generally the ten pillars that every business I've worked on will have those silos and either people heading it up or people overseeing all of that. And within those 10 silos, you would say that at least three of them are front of house and the sort of glamour positions in the kind of industries that I've worked in. So product is one, marketing is another, and sales is is probably the third one. And you obviously want all of those three to be aligned and working in harmony. Um, but as I learned very quickly in my business and when I became a, in a more general management role, um, if you can't ship the product, I, if your operation side isn't good, and most importantly, if you're not getting paid, uh, you won't be in business very long. And so although I grew up in a commercial world and I have a natural leaning for commerce, I literally used to position myself either in meetings or occasionally, you know, in, in sitting in an office where I would choose to sit in an office between operations and finance because I wanted to demonstrate to the entire organization that, that if you're not shipping, if you're not getting your product out and you're not getting paid for it, it doesn't matter. You can have the greatest product in the world. You can have the best marketing campaign in the world. You can have the greatest sales closer in the world. If the product doesn't get there and you don't get paid, it's it's all for nothing. So, yes, of course, you want to come back, you know, specifically to your question. Do you want sales and marketing to get on? Yeah, of course. And there's elements of those where a good sales guy is always marketing his product and a good marketeer is always selling. And even in my GM roles that I've done, I've always felt like I'm always selling. You're either selling to a consumer you're selling a strategy internally you're you're selling a new idea you know whatever it is um so there's i I feel like there's parts of the corporate world today where you're always selling regardless which function you're you're in so for the small business owner with your 10 pillars what would you recommend somebody who's got maybe two or three employees who may be doing some of that but how do you get the rest done as a small business owner well, I I think you've got to have a plan, right, of, of some description. And you don't have to make it. I've sat in meetings where you're building corporate decks that run to 100 pages that you could choke a donkey on it or whatever. And then you're like, who needs that? I'm, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of just a simple one-pager, super easy to communicate, super easy to to carry around, literally carry around with you in your pocket. So that if you get stopped to, you know, by somebody, what are you working on? Here it is. Here's my one pager. This is what I'm working on. Um, so of those 10 pillars, let, let's assume that having a plan is, it's a really good idea, right? I mean, and you can always change the plan. You can adapt the plan. You can edit it. You can rip it up and start again. But that, that one is absolutely crucial, I would say. 
Um, let, let's assume that I don't pretend to know the real estate world, but let's assume the product is kind of out there. So you're not necessarily, I guess, I, I don't know that you're necessarily inventing the product because to a certain degree, I guess the product is already out there. So maybe you don't need to worry about that one too much. Marketing, to use your analogy of guerrilla marketing earlier, again, you, you probably want to do an amount of marketing, I suppose, but I, um, I don't know that, yeah, again, without knowing the real estate business, I, I don't know that if that would really be a, a huge part of it, right? I, I guess, yeah, I don't know. You're, you're, at some point, you're going to need to sell something, right? That, that, that part of it, uh, there is some energy and effort and concentration needed on that. And I know everybody's lived their life on Zoom calls and what have you of late. Um, but even in a Zoom call, or hopefully if we get back to having business meetings and what have you, the world still revolves around people buying from people and making that connection and looking people in the eye. And, you know, if you're old fashioned like I am, shaking hands on a deal or whatever. So I still think, you know, having a plan, being commercially minded, and then probably if you're running your own business, which I had a consultancy business for a period of time, which was hugely uh, so niche that it's, uh, I don't know what, it didn't appeal to anybody maybe. So I have a lot of respect for people that run their own business and keeping an eye on the finances. They're, they're probably, uh, if I had to pick three out of the 10, they might be the three that I would pick. Okay. It goes back to your point about if it's not paid for, then you're not keeping an eye on the finances. Yeah. Okay. And everybody, most businesses, you're going to have to speculate <clears throat> to accumulate somewhere along the line, right? Right. But we've all seen examples of busy fools. Um, so at some point, you do have to have the ability to to say, you know, I don't think this is working. So let's either stop, review it, change the plan, change what we're doing, try a different angle, whatever it is, you do have to be able to have that, either that discipline or step away from the business and, and look at it through cold calculating eyes and just say, we're sure this is actually working. Is the plan still relevant? We're totally sure on what we're doing here. We've still got our eye on you know the consumer or whatever it is. And don't be afraid. Yeah, don't be afraid to change the plan. It's it's all good. I've I've seen that a lot. It's it's often it's yeah. Don't be afraid to change the plan, but also don't confuse the fact that sometimes the plan is fine. It's the execution that's wrong. There's nothing wrong with the plan. It's whether you're executing it properly. Um, I yeah. I saw a video once. I bore people quickly with this amazing video we saw at Nike of Tiger Woods playing a golf tournament where they showed all f all four days of him playing the same hole on a particular golf course. And he was hitting his second shot into the green. And on day one, he put the ball into the water. Uh, day two, he drove the ball to exactly the same spot on the fairway. He picked the same club and he put it into the water again. Day three, he drove the ball middle of the fairway exactly again, same club. And then he put the ball within, you know, like Tiger Wood, within a foot of the pin or whatever. And the moral of the story was um, the the plan and the strategy was absolutely correct. It was the execution that was wrong. So he didn't change the club. He didn't change his, his drive. He didn't change his second shot. 
it was just about execution. So it was a really nice visual way of, you know, telling us as, as execs at the time at Nike about the importance of having a plan and then executing it. Great point. So you mentioned the one, pa- one pager. If, if a real estate investor was going to pull, pull together a one pager, which I think is a great idea, what sort of things would you put on that one pager? What should they be thinking about putting on that one pager? So I typically have built these literally on a PowerPoint using shapes because I like the idea of the structure of, sh- of building it like a house so that it, visually it has some solidity to it. And usually the roof is a, a vision. The kind of insulation on the roof, if you like, is a is a mission. You'll then have pillars, which would be your strategic imperatives. So you might have three, four things that you're trying to achieve, which I would call the strategic imperatives. And then you get into the foundations, which might be the enablers. What is it you're going to have that you must have in order to execute this plan? And then you might have some values at the bottom, some, you know, some personal values, for example, about the way that you conduct business or what your business stands for and what have you. So it's clear you've got, again, to recap, looking at a house from the way down, vision, mission, strategic imperatives, enablers, and then values. And so I think that way, if you're communicating to somebody about your business, about what you're trying to achieve, I don't think I've got one to hand that I could kind of hold up at the screen and show you. <laughs> if it helps, I could probably send you uh, something. Or whatever. Yeah, send, send me one and I can include it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. I, and I've used that. It's a very simple um kind of graphic and super easy to follow and i've used that i probably learned that at nike in fairness so i don't remember doing that at pepsico but from nike onwards in all the companies i've worked in regardless of industry the the business i'm in right now is not in sports fashion it's in a totally different business Um, but i use it there with the commercial team exactly the same reason and it, and people quite like it right? most, most people like to have a plan they like to know what we're trying to achieve here and if it's super easy to follow and, and lay it out then it, it works well visuals are always so powerful totally agree yeah for sure yeah okay so what about um what about you and and your kind of favorite brands what uh what brands would you kind of hold up there and as kind of great brands and why that you love uh, that's a good question. I well, let me pick from the industries that I've worked in. I worked at Levi's, which hand down, hands down, is the coolest brand I've worked for, bar none. Uh, the greatest heritage of any brand that I've seen. They invented something that everyone has copied. Never really been beaten or updated per se as in you know a pair of denim jeans and what have you and lots of brands spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to make out they're cool or they can show you a picture of somebody famous that wore their product once upon a time or whatever i can guarantee you levi's can trump whatever picture you've got because they've got a picture of everybody at any time wearing levi's so i have a lot of time for them and I'm really excited about the way that brand has has resurrected and seems to be on another great trajectory now. Um, and they've done some really interesting things, I think, as a brand in terms of 
innovation. If I look at uh, going back a few years when they kind of did that whole commuter series, when they just chose their target consumer was the, the bike messengers in New York and built an entire range based on that and added a whole new dynamic to their business and obviously the ripples they caused throughout industry. Just spectacular. So I have a lot of time for Levi's as a brand, you know, respecting their heritage, but they're constantly moving forwards for sure. Uh, I have a lot of admiration for Ralph Lauren. I know that as a business that is hurting, as many businesses are, but I have never seen a brand do a better job of segmenting their product line in terms of going from purple label at the very top right the way down through Polo, uh, through RLX, etc., all the way down through Chaps as a kind of entry into their brand, let alone all the, the homewares and what that brand stands for. Their ability to withstand counterfeit, which, I mean, they've been counterfeited to death, but still maintains a, an air of premium. I just think that's a spectacular brand, and I their product is always, anything that I've owned from Ralph Lauren is, great quality positioned really well and just a super brand i think i have to say i'm a huge fan of that um what other brands i've become recently i've got into watches this is uh it's a i'm very late to the party with watches because for years i never wore a watch and then i started a friend of mine is really into them so then i I've got into them so that's a really interesting industry i think the watch industry and there's obviously major players, everyone will have their own favourite therein. Um, but it's quite interesting the way that different brands position themselves, either literally with the product they offer or how they present themselves. Um, it's super easy to say Rolex, and they obviously do an amazing job of brand positioning. But there's also amazing brands to look and admire with the way that they go to market, I, I think, within within that industry so it's interesting it's interesting to see watches come back isn't it because you know we've all got these so why do we need a watch and yet it's 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 a whole different symbol it's saying something different isn't it yeah for sure and watches for different occasions and wearing watches just purely from a color scheme or to your point what do they say about you and again the innovation and the craftsmanship and i think people have ended up being slightly nervous about being such a slave to a phone, etc. And so right. whether it's the element of show or a little bit of jewellery and a bit of peacock feathery, maybe for a guy or whatever, to to wear a watch. Um, yeah, so I've, I've lived a life in the branded world, right. so it's super easy for me to rattle off loads and loads of brands. I'm sure you don't need that, but, yeah, there's a, there's a few okay. going on. What about um, recommended business book? <laughs> uh, I actually don't read, uh, I'm say many. I might even say any. I'm not a huge fan of business books, personally, which probably says more about me than it does about <laughs> the business book. My preferred way of learning is either observing, on-the-job learning, etc., or something more bite-sized than wading through a book. So I I can't sit here and give you the name of okay. my favorite. What would be what would be bite-sized? What do you what do you? 
like something like Harvard Business Review, I think that's super okay. easy to, to dive in and out of, and and you'll you know you'll you'll see a little snippet from that that you're like, oh, okay, pod, podcasts are way easier for me to digest if if I'm commuting, for example, or traveling, then I, I prefer to listen than have my head buried in a book. When I, when I travel on the tube, I'm always fascinated. I don't look at my phone when I'm on the tube. My my preference is to keep my head up and observe people, generally what they're wearing and you know what they're up to and whatever else, right. rather than having my head buried in a phone or buried in a book. That's just, mm-hmm. that's me. So. Okay. Um, a favorite tool or resource? Doesn't have to be business related. Might be something completely. <laughs> um, that's a good question too. I actually, I've got a pen and an ink pen pencil set that I really like, really like. And because I'm a slave to brands, everyone will already guess what it is, so I won't embarrass either me or anybody else. It, these were expensive, but I really like them. I like the craftsmanship of them. I like writing with them. I like the fact there's a slightly old-school feel to it. And many, many, many times in my career, I have left personal notes for people. You know, Often when I was running sales meetings, for example, I might have in excess of a hundred people at the sales meeting. So I would lock myself away in a room the night before and hand write over a hundred notes to people to say, looking forward to working with you this week or looking forward to you securing this deal with that client or whatever it is, but always handwritten with this pen. And I didn't see it as a, a, a chore. I saw it as a labor of love and a kind of personal communication to people so that when they maybe open that envelope, we might have done a room drop beforehand or maybe out with a bro- with a catalogue or something like that. People could say, hey, fair play, I'm not just here as a number. I, there's a little bit of thought that's gone into mm. that. And I so love that. I'm the old school. Yeah, it's inc- I'm old, right? So therefore, I do, I'm into old school things. Um, so I'm, I'm, I might pick my, my fountain pen and my pencil. Interesting. I had a client like that. He was in the tech industry and everybody was in meetings on you know, iPads or whatever. And he purposely used to go into meetings with a moleskin and a Mont Blanc fountain pen. Yeah, I see. <laughs> and, it, and people would be going, trying to get the meeting moving. He'd go, well, hang on a minute. I just needed to ask this question. I need to make a note of that. And he used it purposely to slow meetings down instead of people just rushing to make decisions when he, he said he needed more thinking time in the meetings. So yeah, sure. Yeah, nice. so that I don't have the moleskin, but I do have the pen, so I'm halfway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, final question. Favorite quote or quotes? Okay, I I I do have quite a number of these. I say, I really like. I was taught this by a guy at Levi's, and he had a belief system that your diary is a manifestation of your intent, and I really like that. And I've done it to people that have worked with me or I do mentoring with some people now. And I ask them to open their diary. And if you then take that strap plan that we mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. and you measure it up against your diary, in theory, those two things should overlap. And if they didn't, I used to say to people that reported into me, you're now, I'm going to enable you that if you've got stuff in your diary that isn't working towards this plan or 
if they had their own personal development goals on there as well, that isn't working towards your personal development goals, then you don't have to attend that meeting or you can cancel or rearrange or whatever. So your diary should be the manifestation of your intent. So I'm a huge fan of that. I love that. And then I also, also nicked from someone at Levi's. Um, I like the expression about leaders cast long shadows. And I have made the mistake in the past of underestimating my impact on an organization when I've been in leadership positions. I've just assumed, oh, it's just me and people know me and blah, blah, blah. But when you're in a leadership position, people are watching you all the time. Even when you're not in the room, people are wondering what you're up to and you know, everything you write, everything you say, the way you carry yourself, whatever, it it's it's speaking about you because you're the leader. You're setting the tone of the organization. You might be setting the strategy of the organization or whatever. So don't underestimate how long the shadow is that you cast when you're a leader. So there you go. There's two of my Look favorites. Yeah, Jeff Bezos said um, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very good one. Cool. All right. Excellent. Any parting words of wisdom? Anything else that you'd like to? Take your business seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, make sure you get your work-life balance sorted out. Don't make the mistake I did of chasing a corporate dream. You turn around and your kids are grown up and you miss parts of it. So don't, don't do that. Yeah, have some fun. I, I, I'm not bright enough which people would have already sussed out by now. I'm not bright enough to find a cure for a terrible disease. Right? I've lived my life either selling salted snacks or T-shirts and tennis shoes. That's how I've made a living. So they're fun industries. And although you can take them seriously because they're shareholders and people's livelihoods, in my view, there's still room for fun. So people should, unless you're in a business where it is your job to find a cure for a terrible disease, uh, have some fun when you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. Awesome. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate your time. All right. Cheers. And if you're wondering where your real estate investing brand currently stands and some steps to make it more brandtastic, you can download our free REI brand checklist at reibranded.com forward slash checklist. That's reibranded.com forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening and have a brandtastic day.